The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I can't believe that he just said that out loud. I don't know if you're watching the news at times, but you watch some people on the news and in the media say things. And you say to yourself, I can't believe he just said that out loud. And you hear the words come out of the person's mouth, and your first response is just to cringe and then back away, like to distance yourself from them and from the situation. This doesn't just happen when we watch people say things absurd or offensive on the news. This happens at our Thanksgiving table when our uncle slanders a whole race of people with one word, and we're like, I can't believe he just said that out loud. Or it happens when you're watching reruns of The Office, and Michael Scott demeans the whole female gender with one phrase, I can't believe he just said that out loud. And it happens all the time in politics. When a member of a political party says or does something which is sure to create controversy, the other members of the party, in an effort to protect themselves, intentionally create distance from the offensive person. There's a new expression for one such situation. It's called being Trump-averse. Apparently, there are several uh, techniques to Trump-aversity. Here's just a couple highlighted in a recent article from the New York Times. One way to distance yourself is to be a fast walker. Senator Patrick Toomey has mastered the art of twisting his face into a grimace and racing quickly away from reporters before they can ask him about Mr. Trump's latest statement. Want to create distance? Literally create distance by becoming a distance runner. There's also the vaguely upset, but what can you do technique that goes on? Quote, am I offended sometimes at the comments of Mr. Trump? Yes, I am, said Representative Mark Walker of North Carolina. However, what offends me more are Hillary Clinton's actions. Instead of speaking against the offense, one might distance themselves by deflecting attention onto someone else. And then there's yet another camp. The free speakers, they distance themselves by openly heaping scorn on the offender Trump by calling him disgusting or repulsive or bad for America. Just to be clear, I am not here to take a political position on Donald Trump. I'm more interested in highlighting how people respond to a polarizing person like Donald Trump or Michael Scott, or Hillary Clinton, or Sarah Palin, with some form of distance. When we create a safe distance from what we think is a bad person, we feel better about ourselves. We're not that guy. People will certainly think better of us, too, and we may even believe that God is looking down on us with a nod and a smile of approval. The same kind of distancing occurs in the church, especially when we deal with blatant sin. Read headlines of a shooter in Orlando 
who brutally and abruptly ended the lives of 49 people and respond with, I can't believe someone could do that. Distance. Watch a parent slap their child in public and respond with, I can't believe they are a parent. They are not fit to be a parent. Distance. Hear about a person who, after years of being addicted to pornography, took his addiction to a new low by abusing a young child and cry out, I hope he burns for what he's done. Distance. What's wrong with distance, Chad? Doesn't the Bible say we should flee from immorality and turn away from wicked ways? It does. But is that what's really going on in our minds and hearts when we respond to offenses this way? I don't think so. I think in our minds and our hearts, we're creating this distance. And it causes us to separate from the painful reality that in each of these people dwells something we are afraid to see in ourselves, which is the reality of our own sin. Today's passage, as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, offers an alternative to our distance response. Jesus says earlier in this chapter that he has come to fulfill the law of God, to live a life which depicts not only the outward expression of the law, but more importantly, a life that reflects the heart of the law, the heart of God. And does Jesus fulfill the law by distancing himself from sinners? No. Instead, he draws sinners closer to himself by revealing their need for him and showing them their sin. Look with me at Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body Go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we go any further into this passage, please, would you take a moment with me and pray? Father, your word has the ability to be a sword to us, and to show us who we are. But thankfully, it doesn't leave us there. It also shows us who you are. And so we pray, Father, that as we dive into this uncomfortable passage, Father, that you would help us today to find comfort and find hope in our Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So some sitting on the mount hearing these words might have just said under their breath with a distancing response, I can't believe he just said lust out loud. Jesus' intent in this passage is to expose our distance, our tendency to say, well, well I'm, not, I'm not that bad. 
Last week, Pastor Dan highlighted for us how there were those who believed they were better than murderers because they hadn't broken the sixth commandment by committing such an awful act of taking someone's life. So Jesus had them take a closer look at their own murderous heart to see that even hating a brother is the same thing as murder. And he does a similar thing in today's passage. He's going to eliminate the distance between our own hearts and our sin. Why? Because there is a distance that is of much greater concern to Jesus. It's the distance between God and man as a result of sin. Jesus knows that unless a person acknowledges their sin and finds their remedy for this distance in Christ, a sinner is dead in the water. Does he use big name theological concepts to get people to this conclusion? Mm -mm. He uses, of all things, lust. His desire is that his hearers get uncomfortable so we accurately face the truth of our sin. And the truth of our sin is that it creates separation between God and man. And only Jesus can remove that distance between us and God. And the more we allow him to draw closer to us, the more he will become our strongest desire. So how does Jesus draw closer to us and become our strongest desire according to these uncomfortable words in Matthew 5? He does three things. First, He's going to reveal our hearts. Second, he's going to retrain our eyes. And third, finally, he's going to release our grip. First thing he does in his love is reveal our hearts. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. Jesus begins this section by stating, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. At first glance, you may think he's quoting the Old Testament. He is, and he isn't. This is clearly a declaration of the seventh commandment from Exodus and Deuteronomy. But why doesn't Jesus say, it is written, do not commit adultery? Because there's this thing called oral tradition, which allows religious leaders to bring their own interpretation of the scripture and hand it down through speech. And what is getting handed down to the people when they hear, do not commit adultery, is external righteousness. The religious leaders have messed with the law and made it a list of do's and don'ts. Commit adultery, you're dead. Don't commit adultery, you're safe. Because according to the book of Leviticus, you commit the physical act of adultery, you die. Avoid shacking up with someone's wife. You're in good shape. No death penalty for you. And be sure to keep a safe distance from anyone who's committed adultery. But but what's at the heart of this safe distance theology that the religious leaders are promoting? Here's what happens. People begin to subtly believe that because they don't do something, God will consider them more pure or more righteous and therefore not punish them with death. And what Jesus says to them in verse 28 then is revolutionary. 
he begins the verse by saying, but I say to you, can you hear the sound of an authority coming in to correct the false preaching and the false gospel that's going on? He says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Already. Past tense. Completed action. No more. As long as I don't do this, I'm okay. Guess what, everyone? You have done it, and you all stand guilty. Let's take a second to unpack. What does this mean when he says to look at someone with lustful intent? Well, lust, strictly speaking, means strong desire. So, really, lust, that word is a neutral term. Strong desire depends where your strong desire is headed, but lust, that word on its own, is neutral. But to look at another woman with lustful intent is basically this. I want what you have. It's not mine, but I'll steal it anyway, and I'll sacrifice what I've already got for it. I want what you have. It's not mine, but I'll steal it anyway and I'll sacrifice what I already have. So is this, when he's talking about, is this just a passing appreciation at a beautiful woman? No. This is intentional goggling over a woman in order to inflame a forbidden desire for her as your own. Not only is Jesus highlighting the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, he's also combining it with the tenth commandment, which says, do not covet. She's not yours, but you make her yours through your wild imagination. And like the seagulls in Finding Nemo, remember them? Mine, 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 mine. All of us, including my two-year-old, each day in our hearts, looks Lustfully, meaning strong desire at something someone else has that's not our own and says, mine, and sacrifices what we have already. Mine, 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 mine. And Jesus' new oral tradition says to everyone on this mountain and to us, you've committed adultery, you have coveted, and you are deserving of death. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that this passage is intended to show us, and show them, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. This doctrine of sin, he writes, is essential for our understanding holiness. And he's quoted as saying this, Far too often, people have been smug and glibly satisfied with themselves because they are not guilty of certain things like adultery, and they therefore conclude that they are all right. But in this passage, we see that holiness is not just about what you don't do. Holiness is about the heart. And looking at our hearts, we see we're not all right. We, like the audience on the hill, are squirming in our seats Because we've fallen into the lie that says we're not that bad. That our browsing history is not deserving of death. 
that our Facebook envy of that perfect family is not breaking God's law, that looking at swimsuit models and not hardcore websites keeps us safe distance from condemnation. No. In each of these situations, our eyes and our hearts are saying, I desire what you have. It's not mine, but I'll take it anyway and make it my own and sacrifice what I have. Conclusion, we're all guilty. All of us. Back in the mid-70s, President Jimmy Carter was interviewed by Playboy magazine. In in that interview, Carter took a really significant risk uh, as then governor of the state of Georgia. Not only was this public figure being interviewed by a magazine whose profits were built upon lustful desire, he made the decision to preach Matthew 5 to every man who actually reads the articles in Playboy. He said in the interview, quote, I've looked on a lot of women with lusts. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. And the response from the public was unanimous. What in the world were you thinking, Jimmy Carter, confessing that? Time magazine ranks it as number five in the top ten unfortunate political one-liners. They write, Presidents rarely, and for good reason, venture into the land of too much information. Ideally, our president should exist on a higher plane than the rest of us. It was an uncomfortable moment for America. Why was it so uncomfortable? Because it revealed our hearts. And we don't want to see that part of our heart. We desperately need to ask God to reveal our hearts. Because if we live in this safe distance theology that says we're not that bad because we've never done this or that, we're believing a lie. But if we don't see it, actually if we do see it, accurately, fully, grotesquely, Guess where our understanding of the sinfulness of our sin can lead us? When we really see it for what it is, where can it lead us? To the cross and to the grace of Jesus Christ where our sinful, desperately wicked hearts are cleansed and forgiven. And instead of desiring people or things that aren't ours, we will more strongly desire, or dare I say, lust after the cross of Christ. To say, I strongly desire what you've offered, Jesus. That cross was mine, but you took it for me. You are what I need. The Puritans were really, really good at this practice of understanding their sinfulness. We read the prayer during our confession of sin, and that's a Puritan prayer. And you can see the language. They understand their sinfulness. And they went about this practice of what's called mortification of sin. They would not only acknowledge their sin, but they would study it and want to really understand what's going on. And they would ask God to search the deepest, darkest places of their hearts to show them the distance that exists between themselves and God. And you might think it would cause them to become like a sullen, depressed, Charlie Brown kind of people just walking around. Not at all. 
you will find in their writings and in their prayers a people who knew how bad their sin was, who knew how important the cross was, and who earnestly desired Christ to bridge that distance between them and God. They experienced a joy in the wonder and the beauty of Christ like no other. He had become their first and their strongest desire. This is one of the paradoxes in the kingdom of God. The more accurately we see our sin, the more joyfully we will desire our Savior. In the words of one obscure songwriter, Cheer up, church! You're worse off than you think. Cheer up, church. You're standing at the brink. Don't despair. Do not fear. Grace is near. And something incredible happens when God begins to reveal our hearts. We begin to desire the cross more and desire our sin less as God retrains our eyes. Look with me at verse 29. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. One of the first questions I hope you're asking as you hear this verse is, is this literal? Is God really asking me to break this lust pattern by taking a spoon to my eye? Well, some early Christian fathers actually did take it literally. Origen had himself castrated as a response to this command. But throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus as a God of restoration, giving sight to the blind, opening ears to hear, and making withered hands function again. And these God-given abilities like sight and movement are partly how we're made in the image of God. So I don't believe this command is literal. So what is Jesus communicating here? Well, his desire is that his hearers recognize the significance of the battle against sin, that drastic measures are necessary. Do not pamper sin. Don't flirt with sin. Don't nibble at the crumbs of sin. Anything that takes you down the path of sin, hate it, crush it, dig it out. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And guess where the on-ramp to idolatry begins? With the eyes. Later in Matthew, Jesus will clarify, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Our eyes are windows, allowing in either light or darkness. And to top it off, Jesus focuses in on the right eye, hmm. which in biblical metaphor represents the dominant or more important organ. My son Cadence is a lefty. So for him, Jesus would say, take out your left hand, take out your left eye. Eyes and hands are incredibly important to functioning in daily life, right? 
But Jesus is saying, in essence, if this most important thing, your sight or your hands, is causing you to sin for the sake of your soul, get rid of it. He warns us in His loving compassion of the ultimate consequence to sin. Hell. Hell. The furthest distance from God. Hell is at the end of the sin road. Because sin and a holy God can and never will be able to live in the same place. Can't and never will be able to live in the same place. Hell is where sin always leads. And the cross of Christ serves not only to remind us of our sin... Jesus' words on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Warn us of the separation we would experience without Christ's intervention. We need to hear those words and recognize the reality of hell. Because we are really good justifiers at permitting just a little bit of darkness to pass through our eyes and into our souls. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I hate to admit it. But I have heard myself say when it comes to justifying a lustful image or thought to enter into my eyes and into my soul, I'll say this horrible phrase, I, I, just, I just dipped my toe in the water. This week, God reminded me through this passage, Chad, do not believe for a second that you are dipping your toe in water. You are dipping your toe into hydrofluoric acid. At the end of the sin road is always hell. And are we passively justifying our minor offenses? Are we asking God to remind us of the deadly path that our eyes can lead us on toward hell? I know there are probably several women here who believe this message is not for them. You believe you don't struggle with the lust of the eyes. You may be creating your own safe distance from all the men in the room today. But let me ask you this question. When you look at other women, do you ever desire you had what they had to the point that it makes you discontent? Size four? My wife shared recently how she was getting bummed as she was approaching the summer. And the more she thought about it, the more she realized that seeing all of the Facebook posts of moms taking their kids to this activity or that vacation spot or this museum was causing her to doubt her effectiveness as a mom. I want what they have. It's not mine, but I'll take it and I'll live vicariously through them. And at the same time, I'll sacrifice what's going on here. So here Bliss is, distracted by all of these images. At the same time, her kids are going, Mom, we're right here. And when we steal those images with our eyes, even in our thoughts, we're lusting, we're coveting, we're sinning. And we need to take this warning seriously, friends. This is not legalism. This is a matter of life and death. And the other thing we need to do is we need to plead with those around us whose eyes are allowing in darkness. These warnings to other people are the loving thing to do when they're done with compassion and concern and not judgment or distance. Because to allow the people we love to continue in a pattern of sin that leads to death, that's not love. 
So Jesus calls it out. And he's asking us to do the same. We don't want to be accomplices to people's own destruction. But let's not do that until we take the plank out of our own eye and see our own hearts. I wanted to show a brief video, and I know we don't do this often in sermons, but because we're using our eyes in the video, I thought it would explain better what I'm trying to talk about instead of me talking about it. So take a look at this video, and then we'll talk about it. And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me, and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head, and it's relentless, and I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me most, is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Funny, right? Yes. And no. Because we sometimes believe that we're helping others by listening and offering compassion for their concern, while all the while knowing that the source of their pain is an active pattern of unrepentant sin. Be relentless in your pursuit of them. Call a nail a nail. Encourage them to set their sights on a true God instead of an empty idol that's crushing their heads because a nail in the head is a nail in the coffin. If we love those who are actively destined towards separation from God, let us do the loving thing and give warning. Not only does this passage ask that God reveal our hearts and retrain our eyes, lastly, he's asking us to release our grip. I'll speak shortly and pretty directly on this one because much of what this verse describes is similar to the previous verse. Jesus says in verse 30, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The primary difference between verse 29 and verse 30 is the reference to the hand. How is a hand different from the eye as it relates to desire or lust. Well, darkness left unchecked that has gone through the eyes and into the heart will eventually come out of the hand. And in this passage, it's used to remind us of the power to take lust to a new level. The hand is a part of the body used to steal that which is not your own. If we entertain images of sleeping with another man's wife, 
eventually our right hand will be escorting a woman down the hall toward a bedroom. If we visualize a carefree life without the burden of kids or the monotony of marriage, eventually your right hand will be signing divorce papers. If we entertain an image of your married boss listening to you so much better than your husband listens to you, eventually your right hand will be texting him to grab coffee. Friends, there may be some of us here whose right hand, right now, has stolen something or someone that is not yours. Christ is calling you to release your grip, to cut off the right hand by letting that person or that thing go. He's calling you to take action today. Allow God to reveal your sinful heart and lead you to a cross where there is forgiveness, there's restoration, there's healing, because he doesn't want any distance between you and God any longer. He wants you to live. Don't make the mistake like the woman did in the video of trying to reason or ignore your way out of sin. How many engaged couples alone in their apartment reasoned their way out of having premarital sex? None. How many men sitting at their computer at 11.30 at night reasoned their way out of temptation? None. How many women reasoned their way out of comparing themselves to the size four sitting in front of them? None. The action Jesus calls us to in this passage is to flee. Does scripture say, Work out the pros and cons of sexual immorality. No. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee. Acknowledge the sin. Avert the eyes. Let go of the grip. Run. To conclude, I wanted to tell you a story about a friend of mine. He was recently looking for a better job than the one he had. He found one, and he was offered one. Better pay, better hours, better benefits. But just before he picked up the phone to call them to accept the job, he remembered the tour he received during his interview. And on the tour, he was shown the break room. And on the break room bulletin board was a crude, naked picture of a woman who wasn't his wife. In that moment... God revealed to him his sinful heart when he saw the picture. God retrained his eyes in that moment in the break room to look away and flee. And God released his grip when on the phone with the employer, he heard himself say, I'm sorry, it's not the right job for me. You see, my friend didn't turn down the job because he was better than those guys in the break room. No, he knew he was probably a whole lot worse. My friend didn't turn down the job because he wanted to be the model of righteousness to be the better man. My friend turned down the job because Jesus was the better man. He knew the break room and the talks and the jokes and the pictures had the potential to lead him away from his Savior and to the very pit of hell. 
So he cut off his right hand and he cut out his right eye and he said, the better job, the better pay, the better hours, nothing compared to a better savior. His desire was for Jesus. And may his desire, his lust for Christ and the cross be ours as well. Let's pray. Father, I have to admit that studying your word and going into your word is not a comfortable place to go. But I thank you that you had the boldness to go places we didn't want to go. You had the boldness to say what we didn't want to hear. And you had the boldness to die a death we couldn't die, but one we deserved. Father, thank you for the work of your son in bringing us back to you in bridging the distance between us and you. And we pray that these words from Matthew 5 would allow us the strength and the ability to see our sin for what it is, that you would retrain our eyes to look on the things that are good and pure. And Father, to release our grip of the things that are not ours to have. Thank you again for your word. And thank you, most importantly, for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.